Uh, thank you, uh, Richard. Um, I want to talk about what is uh, probably an unsung success in efforts to achieve a denuclearised world, and that is the success of regional groups of countries who have created uh, legally binding treaties that rid their countries of nuclear weapons and refuse to allow their territory to be used for stationing nuclear weapons by any of the nuclear powers. The idea of nuclear weapon-free zones was first put forward by a Polish diplomat, Adam Rapaki, in the 1950s, the early years of the Cold War, but rejected at the time by Western nuclear powers on the grounds that forward-stationed nuclear weapons were needed to deter the much bigger conventional forces of the Soviet Union and its allies. But the idea didn't die there. Some of the diplomats and leaders committed to disarmament in non-nuclear countries took up the idea for their regions. And what is here today, uh, Ambassador Rolf uh, Ecke is, um, was actually one of the pioneers of this idea in terms of a, a Nordic nuclear weapon-free zone. Another was the Nobel Prize-winning architect of the first nuclear weapon-free zone in a, in a populated region, the Mexican diplomat Alfonso Garcia Robles. The nuclear-free zone that Robles successfully negotiated in 1967 covers the whole of South America and bans nuclear weapon acquisition by any country in that region and the stationing of such weapons by nuclear powers. <coughs> Not only have all the Latin American countries signed up to the zone, but the five Security Council nuclear powers have agreed to sign protocols binding them not to use or threaten to use nuclear weapons against any country in that region. And that's the first agreement under which the US and other nuclear powers have accepted limitations on their right to use nuclear weapons. Alfonso Garcia's Robles' vision was, and I'm, I'm quoting, that nuclear weapon-free zones would gradually broaden the areas of the world from which nuclear weapons are prohibited to a point where the territories of powers which possess them, these terrible weapons of mass destruction, will be something like contaminated islets subject to quarantine. If you look at the media, you could be forgiven for thinking that Robles was daydreaming. Almost every day we're confronted with nuclear proliferation risk in, in, in one region or another. And certainly international concerns about nuclear proliferation are very real, especially in Northeast Asia, where North Korea, as we've just heard, has acquired nuclear weapons. Middle East, where Israel has nuclear weapons and Iran is obviously seeking them. And, of course, South Asia, where both India and Pakistan have tested nuclear weapons. But media coverage uh, of the bad news stories has overshadowed the fact that many countries, in fact the majority of countries, have actually region by region followed the denuclearization path that was Robles' vision. And one South American uh, diplomat likened this to the process of peeling an orange. Imagine the globe as an orange with a nuclear skin. Well, first the skin was peeled from the bottom of the orange when the 1959 Antarctic Treaty um, that demilitarizes and denuclearizes everything south of the 60th parallel was signed. And then, as we've seen, more of the skin was taken off with the Latin American Treaty in 1967. Two decades later, in 1985, the South Pacific Islands, Australia and New Zealand, established a nuclear weapon-free zone treaty in our part of the world. Not the perfect zone, but uh, one that banned acquisition, testing, stationing of nuclear weapons in our part of the world. Then um, a decade later, 1995-1996, over half the nuclear skin of the orange was peeled off when Africa and the Southeast Asian states signed up to nuclear weapon-free zones. And the most recent zone, entirely in the Northern Hemisphere, is the Central Asian nuclear zone, where five of the states that used to be part of the, uh, the Soviet empire established a nuclear weapon-free zone. 
So altogether, over 120 countries have signed up to nuclear-free zone arrangements that bind them not to develop nuclear weapons and bind the nuclear, or seek to bind the nuclear powers not to use or threaten to use nuclear weapons against them. They are also a very significant lobby group in the UN and the international community seeking to extend nuclear weapon-free zones to new regions and to achieve complete nuclear elimination. And there have been two meetings, one in 2005 and another more recently uh, this year, that, that have uh, brought together states belonging to nuclear weapon-free zones and enabled them to, do, to be part of this uh, uh, mobilisation of the international community for, for nuclear elimination. Regional nuclear weapon-free zones are not panaceas. They do not remove the central threat posed by the existence of nuclear stockpiles in the hands of the current nuclear powers and sought by other states deluded enough to think that nuclear weapons will bring them security. Only a centrally negotiated nuclear weapons convention will do that, as other presenters have argued. But what regional nuclear weapon-free zones can do is re reduce in a geographical way the areas in which nuclear weapons are part of security arrangements, either on the part of regional states or the part of uh, uh, nuclear weapon states seeking to forward deploy their arsenals. <coughs> they serve as practical and symbolic ways of reducing the role of nuclear weapons in security arrangements. The challenge now is to extend the peeling of the nuclear orange to regions like the Middle East, the Korean Peninsula, Northeast Asia and South Asia, all areas where nuclear proliferation, as we've noted, has already occurred. I'm not, I, each of those areas is highly complex, and, but I would like to say something about the possibilities for the Korean Peninsula and Northeast Asia, which is the focus of this particular session. So North Korea has exploded two small bombs, as we've just heard. It has also pulled out of the six-party talks chaired by China, um, and, and those talks, um, as late as last year, seemed to hold out such promise. There was a 1967 agreement, and uh, that was to be you know, for North Korea to denuclearize in a verified way in exchange for economic and other assistance. And the situation is very grave because of uh, North Korean acquisition of nuclear weapons could lead to a nuclear arms race in the region, with both Japan and South Korea very capable of rapid development of their own nuclear, force, uh, nuclear weapons. And as we've seen from Tillman's presentation, even a limited nuclear war in this highly populated region would be a catastrophe of unimaginable proportions for the region and for the whole world. The odd thing is that as recently as 16 months ago, everything seemed to be going well. In May 2008, I'm quoting the US State Department, uh, North Korea had provided 18,000 pages of documentation relating to its nuclear programs, carried out eight of 11 agreed disablement activities at its three core facilities, and was continuing work with the other three. So what happened? There were disputes over things like the unfreezing of North Korean assets in the uh, Banco Delta Asia uh, Bank, as agreed, this was an agreement under the, the February six-party talks, an agreement with North Korea. That didn't happen. There was a US, Japanese, and South Korean insistence on intrusive verification of North Korea's declaration of its plutonium-related programs before moving into the second phase. Another thing that wasn't agreed as part of the first phase, it was agreed that that would happen in the second phase. But we didn't get to the second phase because it was insisted upon as part of the first phase. So the whole thing unraveled. North Korea this year tested a ballistic missiles in the guise of a satellite launch, conducted its second uh, underground test, and confirmed, as we've heard, that it's embarking on a uranium enrichment program. So defeat once again snatched from the jaws of victory. 
There is now a new window of opportunity following the advent of the Obama administration in Washington, the Hatoyama government in Japan, and a heightened sense of urgency on the part of the Chinese government. In 1992, the two Koreas did sign up to a joint declaration on the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, but it was never implemented. It contained many of the provisions of other nuclear weapon-free zones and represents a legal basis and starting point for new discussions on denuclearization. These would need to aim at developing more fully-fledged and comprehensive zone arrangements for the Korean Peninsula. The most critical need would be for a new or revised Korean nuclear weapon-free zone treaty to include protocols that would bind the nuclear weapon states, especially the United States, not to use or threaten to use nuclear weapons against the two Koreas, something long sought but never assured in a legally binding way during all the previous abortive US-North Korean negotiations. It would also need to be more comprehensive in the sense of creating a basis for regional cooperation on economic and energy needs. And this could be achieved by a separate protocol that would create a framework for providing the economic and energy assistance, sustainable development assistance, and non-military energy infrastructure, including a light water reactor sought by North Korea. Um, if it included all those, it would be crucial as the North Korean leadership weighs up the relative costs and benefits of maintaining or relinquishing their recently demonstrated nuclear weapon capabilities. Although Northeast Asia and the two Koreas lack the kind of regional organizations that have played such an important role in nuclear-free zone establishment in other parts of the world, there's nothing to prevent the convening of a special conference to renegotiate the 1992 joint agreement with not only the Koreas but also Japan, China, the United States and Russia. Alternatively, it might be negotiated to a resumption of the six-party talks. Another suggested way forward has been put by Japan's leading newspaper, Asahaya Shimbun, in an editorial last month, and I quote, One worthwhile idea would be a nuclear-free zone treaty for Northeast Asia. Japan and South Korea could take the initiative by signing such a treaty first and putting it into force. If the United States, China and Russia all ratify a protocol that bans them from launching nuclear attacks against Japan and South Korea, a non-nuclear umbrella would be raised for the region. A non-nuclear umbrella. North Korea should be able to join the treaty for protection under the non-nuclear umbrella after it abandons its nuclear program and returns to the MBT. This prospect would give North Korea a strong incentive to abandon its nuclear ambitions. So this is not a fringe nuclear group, anti-nuclear group in, in Japan. It's one of their leading newspapers saying this. So in Northeast Asia, to conclude, we're now at a new fork through very difficult terrain. One path leads on to peace and human security. The other scarcely bears thinking about. A regional nuclear arms race that could lead to nuclear next use and catastrophic destruction regionally and globally. Past Korean negotiations have involved so many wrong turns and reverses, words that were not meant or words that were not kept. But we're now at a more hopeful moment following the changes of leadership in the United States and Japan. There are new opportunities for a more comprehensive solution to the security issues and fears that have led to North Korean proliferation and that pose unprecedented threats regionally and globally. <clears throat> this solution would need all the courage, commitment and cooperation of political leaderships in and beyond the region, including Australia, to go beyond Cold War assumptions about nuclear weapons and deterrence and commit themselves to the global elimination of nuclear weapons and region-by-region region denuclearization, and not least 
in, in, on the Korean Peninsula, and the way is very much still open. <coughs> so thank you.